I mentioned earlier, this is Reformation Sunday. This is, in fact, Reformation Day. The last Sunday in October is always Reformation Sunday, um, but it's very rare that we actually get to celebrate this day on Sunday. And so we are thankful for that this morning. We are thankful that we are able to stand in this tradition that dates back to 1517, to Luther nailing those theses on the door. You know, the story of Martin Luther is an interesting one. He grew up, his, his father was a working class, very successful craftsman, and wanted Luther to, to, to move to that next level. That's what we always want for our kids, right? We want them to be able to move to the next level. We want them to, to move into that next place in society, and that's what his father wanted. And his father knew that then where that came from, in the 1500s, just assuredly as it does in the 21st century, was by education. And so he sent Martin Luther away to be educated, and in fact was educated as a lawyer. That's what his father wanted him to be. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. And one night, Martin Luther is traveling, and he gets caught in a storm, and we have heard this story so often with so many different people, but he calls out in the midst of the storm, he is sure that he is going to be killed, and he calls out in the midst of the storm, God, my God, if you save me, I will join the monastery. If you save me, I will dedicate my life to you. And he survived the storm. And so then he had the very unenviable task of going and telling his father, who has scrimped and saved his whole life to send him to law school to become a lawyer, hey, guess what? I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm going to go be a monk. Reports are his father did not take it very well. But as Martin Luther continued to study... And as he continued to study in the monastery, and as he studied scripture, and as he studied theology, he knew that something was wrong. Martin Luther was one of these individuals who comes under extreme conviction of his own sin. And it would lead him to over-confess. The monks would come in every day, they each had a confessor, and they would confess to the confessor. And Luther would spend hours confessing his sin, and then would panic if he would leave the confessional and on his way to dinner, remember one thing that he had done that he had not confessed. In fact, it got, it got so bad, his confessor actually instructed him to stop confessing. He was taking it a little too seriously. But Martin Luther knew that something was wrong. He knew that there was something was wrong in the world, and he also knew that if it was up to him, and if it was up to his actions, and if it was up to his ability to confess every sin, to, to, to check all of the boxes that the monastery and the, the theology of the Roman Catholic Church was telling him to do, that it would be in vain, that he would never be able to do it. Martin Luther knew that something was wrong in the world. Martin Luther knew that the world was not as it should be. We know there is something wrong in the world. We know that there are things in the world that are not as it should be. 
We experience that every day. I was informed this morning, I had missed the news, I was informed this morning that two more individuals were murdered in our community last night. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way the world is to be. Something is wrong. Martin Luther knew that something was wrong. We know that something is wrong. And we keep trying to fix it. You know, the 19th century was this century of all of these utopian ideals. People had been set free in the 17th century by the gift of the Enlightenment, and we were going to enter into a new age of human perfection and utopia. But it doesn't work out, does it? Every time we try and bring about utopia, every time we try and bring about perfection, every time we try and fix the problem, we make it worse. Make it worse. There's a problem. And we need a solution. Martin Luther had a problem and he needed a solution. We're going to be in Romans Romans 8 this morning. We're going to be in Romans 8, the third, excuse me, no, Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning, starting with the 21st verse. I'd encourage you to turn with me to Scripture. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, please grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you. And if you don't have a copy to call your very own, please accept that as our gift to you this morning. We're in Romans chapter 3. Starting with verse 21, will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him, presented Jesus, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He who would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we, as we open your Word this morning, I just pray that your grace would pour out of it, that your grace would cover us this morning, that our faith would grow, that we would see that we are We are saved not by our works of our own hands, that we are saved not by by the teachings of the church, but we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that it gives to us and the sins that it forgives. And so God, as, as we open Your Word, as we study Your Word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing to You, our God and our King. Amen. may be seated. So we've, we've talked a bit about the book of Romans before, but, but let me remind you 
A little bit of the context of this letter that Paul is writing. Paul is writing to a church that he has never met. Most of the churches that Paul writes to, he knows because he's helped plant them. But the Roman church, the church in Rome, is a church that he has never met before. He's heard about them. They've heard about him, but he hasn't met them. But they're at this crossroads, and we we understand that they have reached out to him for his help. And they're at this crossroads because what has happened is is after the fire in Rome, the, the Jews are expelled from Rome. And that means Jewish believers are expelled from Rome. And so Gentile believers, Gentile Christians stay behind. Um, Jewish believers, Jewish Christians are exiled and they have just come back. They've just been allowed back into the city. And so now we have a church in Rome that has, for a number of years, sort of been separated. And as they've separated, they've sort of developed some differing ideas between each other. And they reach out to Paul saying, help us figure out where we are. Help us figure out the gospel. Because we're having some conflict on that. They're, they're, they're a church. They're a group of believers who are trying to remember who they are. Because they've experienced this trauma of being separated one from another. In the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1 Verse 5, Paul writes to them this, Through Him we have received grace. Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the Gentiles. Paul starts out very early reminding them that it is by Jesus that we receive grace and that grace brings about obedience in faith. He continues in Romans um, 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Why is Paul making this point about Jew and Greek? Because this is a church where there are Jewish believers and there are Greek believers. He's reminding them that, that yes, they are Jew and Greek, but they are one in Christ. 117 continues, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel, the good news, is the power of salvation. Because the righteous will live by faith. This is how Paul opens this letter to this fractured troubled, traumatized church. Faith and grace. And these become the themes that run through Romans. In fact, it was a study of Romans that led Martin Luther to understand that we are saved not by works, but by faith alone. Sola Fide. There are five solas of the Reformation, sola being the, the, the Latin word for only. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola scriptura, by, by scripture alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. And sola Deus gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the, the underpinnings of the, of the Reformed Protestant faith. But it's in Romans 
that Martin Luther begins to see and understand and have his heart opened to grace. And so here in in Romans 3, what Paul is doing is he's laying out the problem and then lays out the solution. If we go back, if we were to go back and read Romans 1 and 2, we were to see that, that he takes a long time setting the stage, proving to the church in Rome that indeed there is a problem. And so this is sort of the summation of that argument. There in, in verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to, who all, to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one person alive, there is not one person who has ever lived who can live without breaking the law of God, with the exception of Jesus. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how righteous you think you are. I don't think how closely you manage your P's and your Q's. I don't care how much you compare yourself to someone else. Not one person is without sin. Every now and then, people will come and will ask a question. Well, if this kind of person were to come to the church, or if this kind of person were to come to the church, would we let them in? And my answer to that is, if we start excluding sinners from the church of Jesus Christ, it's going to be empty in here on Sunday morning. You're not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. The only person who will be here will be the Holy Spirit, and he'll be here by himself. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Before we we get to verse 21 and verses 9 and 20, Paul has shown us that the whole, whole world is guilty before God. It's important for us to remember who exactly God is. What do we know about God? We know that God is holy. God is perfect. We know that God is just. And for some of us, that should give us some hope that God is just. But for all of us, it should cause us to tremble that God is just. We also know that God is sovereign. As I mentioned earlier, God is the creator of the universe. There is not one thing that happens in all of creation that is not under the sovereignty of God. And when you put those three things together, it should scare us. Because if God is holy and perfect, it means that He will not accept unholiness and unrighteousness. If God is just, it means that He will punish those who are unholy and unjust. And if God is sovereign, it means that He's got the power to do it. And those three things should terrify us. Those were the three things that had gotten hold of Martin Luther that scared him so bad that he would spend hours upon hours in the confessional. Brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, when was the last time you spent hours and hours on your knees confessing your sins to God? But we know one other thing about God. We know that God loves And we know that God loves us. And so we know that God is holy and just 
and sovereign, but that he also that he loves. And so if there is a problem, there's going to be a solution. The whole world is subject to God's judgment. Paul wants to make the point that it is not simply the Jews, it is not simply God's chosen people who are subject to judgment, but in fact, all creation. The whole world, all of us, subject to God's judgment. And he also points out that as soon as we know the law, it convicts us. As soon as we are aware of the law, it does not save us, it does not provide us righteousness. In fact, it makes us stand condemned. Because of this, mankind can only be made righteous through Christ. Our good works will never save us. When Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, in the second chapter of of Ephesians 8 and 9, he says this, For you are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. We like to do that, don't we? We like to boast. Let me tell you, the Braves are one game away from winning the World Series. I'm going to boast about it. Let me tell you something else. Wake Forest Demon Deacons are for the first time in program history 8-0. I'm going to boast about it. But here's the thing. Neither of those things are because of the work of my hand. I wasn't the one who handed Dansby Swanson the bat last night so he could step up to the plate and pull even. I wasn't the one who, who, who encouraged Solar to, to run and swing that bat when he had the go-ahead home run. And as much as I might have been invested in the game last night against Duke, and you can ask Audrey, we sat at dinner and I watched it on my phone. She was very happy about it. As much as I was invested, as much as I want to think that Dave Clawson is my buddy because I listen to him every week on his radio show, as much as I want to yell and scream and chant Wake Forest, I had nothing to do with Sam Hartman being the best quarterback in the ACC. I had nothing to do with Matt Skiba being the best kicker in college football. But I want to boast about it. Sometimes we do that. We want to boast about our salvation. We want to boast about how good we are. We want to boast about all the great things that we are and that we do. But Paul reminds us we have nothing to boast about. Because we didn't do any of it. It was a gift from God. Because, you know, no matter how well we do, no matter how much we try and white-knuckle it, no matter how much we try and keep ourselves inside the line, no matter how, how perfect we try and make ourselves, we still sin. We still fail to measure up to the glory of God. Because here's the thing. We're going to be judged not against other people. We're going to be judged against His holy and perfect standard. Now, I want you to be honest. Who in here is perfect? Anybody who raised your hand, I was going to have a conversation with your spouse. 
or your kids or your parents. All have failed to measure up to the glory of God. All have failed. And brothers and sisters, it does not matter what country you were born in. Being born in a particular country does not make you a Christian. It does not matter what family you're born into. Being born into a Christian family, raised by Christian parents, does not make you a Christian. Being a Christian, being a a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, is not a tribal or an ethnic or a cultural identity. It only is applicable by faith. This is the difference between us and some of our other Protestant brothers and sisters. They, they believe that when a child is born into a Christian family, they're already a part of the new covenant. And so we mark them as part of the new covenant by baptizing those babies. But we understand that it doesn't matter what family you're born into. That you're not a member of the new covenant until you are born again. Until you make conscious choice to respond in faith to God's grace. In verse 24, Paul says, they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're not justified by anything we've done. We're justified by grace. We're justified by something we did not earn and did not deserve. How do we get it? Why is it that, we, that we're able to, to be given this gift? Because if we didn't deserve it and we didn't earn it, how does it come our way? It comes our way only through the redemption found in Jesus Christ. That's Paul gets to in verse 25. He says that, that Christ is sent into this world for one reason and one reason only. Christ was sent into this world to redeem humanity, to save us from our sin and to set us free. How does He save us? He saves us with two things. He saves us first with His blood. Jesus' death was substitutionary. That means that He was a substitute for us. He took our place. The righteousness of God, the justice of God demands payment for sin. And it's a payment that we can't make, that we're not capable of making, but Christ's blood paid the price for our sin. But that alone doesn't make us righteous. That wipes the slate clean, but it doesn't give us righteousness. So the second thing that Jesus gives to us, the second thing that Jesus gives to us that saves us is His righteousness. His blood wipes away our sin and then His righteousness covers us. See, this is how the cross works. It works both ways. We're giving a, we each are giving a gift to each other. We give to Jesus the wonderful gift of our sin. But Jesus gives to us the amazing and beautiful gift of His righteousness that covers us. Our sin is put onto Christ to pay the price, and then Christ's righteousness is put on to us. And this is grace. 
Something that we in no way earned is given to us, Christ's righteousness, while that which we have earned, God's wrath and punishment, is taken on by Christ. This is the plan. This is, this is what Paul says in verse 26. This is God's plan. That God presented Jesus to demonstrate His righteousness, His perfection and His sinlessness. See, it takes God in the flesh to get it right. In all of this, let us not forget, let us not lose sight of who Jesus is. Jesus is not some guy who was the one guy that was born in the first century in Galilee who happened to figure out how to get it right. Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. The second person of the Godhead. God in the flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. So this work that is being done is not being done on behalf of God. It's being done by God. Our sin is a, is a big problem. Our sin is a big problem. And if you want to question how big a problem it is, I present to you the world. I present to you the broken relationships in your life. I present to you the violence, the drug addiction, the alcoholism that has touched all of our lives. I was reading the newest issue of National Geographic we got this week. And I was reading in there about the ongoing conflict that's happening in northern Ethiopia. I had no idea that there was ongoing ethnic conflict happening in northern Ethiopia. Did you? But a an ethnic group in northern Ethiopia that's over 60% Christian is being attacked by the Ethiopian and, and the Eritrean government. Massacres. Mass killings. Institutionalized rape as weapon. I didn't know what was happening. There's a problem. There's a problem. And the problem is big. The problem can seem overwhelming, can it? We can sit here in Fairmont and we can, and we can be overwhelmed by the problems that are right here in our neighborhood. Forget about the problems in Ethiopia. Forget about the, 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 the problems in Burma. Right here. We can be overwhelmed. In our own lives, we can be overwhelmed. By the problem. The problem's big. But brothers and sisters, the plan, the answer to the problem is relatively simple. Trust in Jesus. And then he takes on our sin and covers us in his righteousness. God looked at his creation, and he looked at us, at his creatures, and he saw the problem. 
And yes, he is a holy and a perfect and a just God whose wrath will be poured out on those who have broken his law. But he also is the God who loves us. And so he looks at the problem and he said, they can't solve it. But I can. I will go to them. I will send the Son to them. And he will demonstrate his righteousness before them by living a sinless life. He will teach them what it means to follow me, what it means to follow God, what it means to be a disciple. And then, when the time comes, He will go to a criminal's cross. And He will die a criminal's death. And He will take on all of the sins of the world and pay the price. And then His righteousness shall cover them. In Psalm 51, David, David makes this prayer. He says, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Because of our sin, we must be born again. But only Christ can cleanse us of our sin If we are not cleansed by Christ, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. But if we confess our sin, God will forgive us. Cover us in His righteousness. You know, some of us may may struggle with having confidence that we can be treated as a beloved son or daughter of God. Some of us have that problem deep down inside. We just think we're not quite good enough. And here's the thing, you're not. But the good news is that it's not about what you have done. It's about what He has done. And the good news of salvation is not just for the heaven. It's not just for the sweet by and by. It's not just for what happens after we die. But it's for our lives now. Because we can know without a shadow of a doubt that not only does God save us because of Jesus, but He loves us. And in fact, even likes us because of Jesus. You have anybody like that in your life that you love but you don't particularly like? But God loves us and likes us because of Jesus. God feels about us the same way that He feels about His beloved Son because that's what it means when Christ covers us in His righteousness. God wants to be around us. He wants to know us and to be known by us. He wants relationship with us. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing grace. Tony Evans tells a story about being in a restaurant. 
And he was in this restaurant, and it came time to, to pay the bill, and so he asked the waiter to come on over and, and bring him his bill, and the waiter goes to collect everything and, and comes back and says, I don't have a bill for you. Somebody picked up the tab for you. Tony Evans says, now, I would have been a fool to sit there and argue with the waiter. I would have been a fool not to accept the gift. All I could say was thank you. I showed gratitude for a price that had already been paid. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to accept His gift. He has paid our tab. And some people are fools because they refuse to accept God's free gift. The price of salvation has already been paid. The Son of God picked up the tab. So the question is, are you willing to accept this free gift? Because that's the plan. Sin fractured our relationship with God. But we have been made right once and for all by God's grace. A free gift from God to us through Jesus Christ. It's not a result of anything that we have done, but a result of everything that He has done for us. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 305. I have decided to follow Jesus. That is the response to this gift of grace, is to make the decision to follow Jesus. And so I'd ask you, if you've never made that decision today, this is an opportunity to make it. Whether you are here or whether you are online. Maybe you've made that decision, but you want to recommit yourself. You want to, you want to say thank you again for the gift that has been given to you. And maybe you just want to respond in thankfulness to the fact that the tab has been paid. This is an opportunity to do that. 305, I have decided to follow Jesus. Please stand. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back.